I will read one more time from the book of James, chapter 5, and verse 11 again, one more time. This is the last time, maybe, that we'll read this passage as we wind down the book of Job, and then we'll go to another place. James 5, 11 says, you have heard of the patience or perseverance of Job, And have seen the purpose of the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and of tender mercy. So we talked last time about one of God's purposes in allowing what came on Job. Was to demonstrate to the universe that God is worthy. And that some will recognize his worth And some will not. Satan said, Job will curse you if you take away his goodies. And God said, go ahead and take him away then and let's see what Job does. And Job worships and he weeps, yes, but he weeps and worships. He praises God. He doesn't curse God. Job was convinced that God is worthy to be worshipped no matter what. And we are too, aren't we, brothers and sisters? We're convinced of that. If God's providence to us comes to us in the form of benefits and successes, advancements, progress, we say, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, for this. But what if God's providence is measured out to us with loss or failures of some sort or another? Our body breaks, our health breaks, our career falls flat, the company downsizes, the family betrays us, whatever it may be, we say, well, my God is good. Our God is worthy to be praised, whether the sun is shining brightly or the clouds are dark overhead. So one of the purposes, one of the purposes, the first we emphasized, and we want to say it again tonight, that the purpose of the Lord's dealing with Job is the same purpose he has in his dealings with all of us that he might demonstrate to the world, to the universe, to angels, to principalities and powers that he is God and he has a people that loves him. He is God and he has a people that loves him. Let's talk about another purpose of God's in the way he dealt with Job. And it is going to be in particular the purpose of God's good way of dealing with Job, to humble Job. God humbles Job. And God is always humbling us, and that's a good thing, beloved. But before we read the text, let me just say one more thing about God's glory. I have heard atheists, not heard them, I've read their blogs and their comments on various things, and and they say awfully uh, irreverent things about God. They say, how, what kind of God is it that always needs to be praised? say that and he demands that people praise him and they say what if we did that oh how ugly that kind of person would be and you see they they got a real huge category failure don't they we're creatures he's the creator and here's an illustration that Christopher Ash gives in his commentary I gave it way back let me give it again at this point before we move on to number two point where God humbles Job and it's one of his purposes The first purpose that we talked about last week is God's manifesting his glory to the universe. 
So the story is, is it's, not, it's not megalomania. It's not self-centered of God to promote his own glory or to desire glory. It would be very inappropriate for us to do so, but for God to do so, it is the most deeply right thing in the universe because he's God. And here's the simple illustration that I think sheds some light. Uh, if any of us were to suggest that we ought to be given a Nobel Prize for pick the field, okay, let's just pick chemistry. If we were to suggest that we deserved a Nobel Prize for chemistry, we would be suggesting something deeply inappropriate, unless you're a chemist, and I don't know it. I don't think we have any expert chemists in here. Our knowledge of chemistry, if it's like mine, is very poor. I've forgotten what little I did know. So if this prize were to be given to me or to you, if you're not a chemist, it would be something would be deeply wrong with the Nobel Prize Committee. They made a huge mistake to give that kind of award to somebody that totally don't deserve it. But if a brilliant chemist who has done foundational and seminal work is given the prize and suggests that he thinks maybe he ought to be in the running for the prize because of his work, now that's very different, isn't it? In, in fact, if he's not given the prize, there's something wrong with the committee. He deserves it because of his knowledge, his groundbreaking work in chemistry. He deserves this prize. And if you don't give it, it's a travesty. It's a, an injustice has happened if he doesn't get this, this prize. Well, in a similar way, the universe is terribly awry it is out of order. It is a mess when God is not given glory because he deserves it. He made it. It's his universe. He made it for his glory. He made it to display his glory. In fact, we could back up even further, I think, and even put a finer point on it, when we, which we did when we had our discussion on delighting in the Trinity. We said way back in eternity, before there was a universe, before there was a creation, the Father was loving his Son. And one of the ways that he would demonstrate his love for his son, he would create a world. And in this world, he would create a people. And among that people, out of that people, he would give his son a people. And his son would come and die for that bride of his and claim them for himself. So someone has said that the creation of the world was just really an overflowing and a spilling out of God's love for his son. The father's love for his son. So he would create and he would manifest his glory in his power to create. In his, he would manifest his mercy in saving a people that didn't deserve to be saved. And so, how many people in the world today are giving God glory? Surely in the church it's happening. That's one of the places it must happen. To him be glory in the church, Paul says. But in this world... All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They're not hitting the mark. The bullseye is give God glory and everybody's arrows coming short. They're missing the target. Romans 3.23. So will God find anybody in Job's day? Is there anybody that loves him enough to give him glory no matter how he deals with them? If death comes to his children, his body breaks, his fortune, his great fortune is wiped out in a day. He loses his herds and his flocks and his servants and 
And then his children, 10 of them, all 10 at one time. Surely that man will curse God. Except he doesn't. Even then, even then, even then, Job praises the God who says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's how a Christian ought to think. And we do think that way, but we're weak. And at times we don't think that way. But Job helps us and reminds us this is how we must think. So God's glory was one of his main purposes in why he dealt with Job as he did. And Job persevered through the pain and he didn't curse God. And his friends came and gave him all kinds of bad advice. And Job pressed on. He said, I just want to see my God. I want him to resolve this. He alone can do it. And so God was glorified in Job's life and in his suffering. Second purpose. Let's read Job 42, 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Uh, Nothing of yours can be thwarted. Yes, there is evil in this world. There is a Satan in this world, an adversary. And yet you are the one that does everything. You Command this to happen, you control it, you use it for your glory, you use it for your purposes. None of your plans can be stopped. You are God. We talked about that this morning, the sovereignty of God. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? This is what God asked Job earlier, and Job is saying, Lord, you asked me this, here's now what I want to answer. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. I said some things I ought not to have said, and I thought I knew some things which were above my head that I didn't understand. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, and declare thou unto me. Again, that's what God told Job back a few chapters. And now Job responds again, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, But now mine eye seeth thee, wherefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. And there is Job humbled. There is Job bowing low before God. That's where a creature is supposed to be, beloved, isn't it? It's where we're supposed to be. It's right. That's right for us to do. And so when Job repents here, he does not mean that his friends were right all along. And now Job has seen these secret sins that they accused him of. And finally, he has to admit of these secret sins and repent of them. No, that's not what he means. He has maintained his integrity. And he is a man of integrity. But now he has been presumptuous. And he has spoken things that he didn't understand. And he's overreached. And now in the presence of the living God, he bows down. And he puts his hand on his mouth because that was a lot of his problem, what, we, what he was saying. And he covers his mouth and he repents and bemoans his wretchedness. He bows down before God. That's the right posture in the presence of the living God, to bow down. To see finally how great he is and how 
small I am. That's a healthy thing. It's not a bad thing. It's it's a true thing, and therefore it's a good thing for us to do it. We are impressed with ourselves until we get a glimpse of the one who is infinitely great, and we're not impressive anymore. We're humbled, even grieved, even humiliated. Our boasts disappear. We put our hand on this boastful mouth, and we say, boastful tongue, you've said enough already. Let your eyes look at this one. I've heard of you, he said, but now I have seen something of your greatness. And so this is true of us. This is where a creature ought to be low before God. Humility is a good thing, beloved. Amen. It's a good thing for us to be humble. But we don't get that right very often. It's such a subtle thing. Pride is. So we, here, here's, here's how it works. We, we pray for, <clears throat> think about what we pray for. We pray for the, the tests we're going to have upcoming or the surgery. We pray for the job interview. Uh, we pray for good results. We pray for safe travels. We pray for many good things. And, and often God, in his kindness, grants them. And we find that we succeed we got the interview. We got the job. We are healed off the sick bed. We're raised up again. We had a safe journey to and from. And often our success leads us to what? It leads us to pride. It, and pride leads us to self-confidence. And self-confidence leads us to independence from God. And we begin to drift. We didn't, don't need him quite as desperately as we did because we've had a little stretch of of success, and our subtle heart so subtly becomes proud and self-confident, and, and our Bibles begin to gather a little dust, and our prayer closet is uh, empty, our prayers are cold, we mouth words and call it praying, because we're proud. This is just a fact, often. One of the most merciful things God can do for us is to humble us. It's not a punishment. It's a blessing. It's one of his mercies. You have seen the purpose of the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and of tender mercy. And how do we see that? Well, we see it here at the end of Job. Job bowed low. Job humbled before God. Where does pride lead a man? Success leads to pride, pride to self-confidence, self-confidence to independence, and independence from God ultimately leads to hell. Independence from God. I'm not saying a Christian will go to hell. I'm just saying if you work that out in an unconverted man, you know, he has success and confidence and pride and independence from God, and then independence from God is, is hell ultimately. So one of the most compassionate things God can do is to lead us to humility. Lead us to the point where we bow down and and trust him and lean on him. He humbled Job under his mighty hand. That song we sang at the beginning written by, did you see the author at the bottom of that page? It was John Newton. 
Brother John Newton, the same writer that wrote Amazing Grace and many other wonderful songs. And if you ever get a chance, you can look it up on the internet, I think. Uh, read some of John Newton's pastoral letters that he, wrote, that he wrote to people who were struggling. They didn't text back then, and they didn't pick up the phone, but they wrote letters in longhand. And they wrote letters and, and, and sent them by post and mailed them. And, and he would counsel people through these extensive letters that he would write. And there were such warm pastoral letters. And I got a feeling that song we sang probably was, came out of one of his letters that he wrote. We ask the Lord for this and that, and God has strange ways of dealing with us. He gives us success by bringing us low, and he causes us to grow by leaning on him, by trusting him. I know this is not the sunshine message that everybody likes to hear nowadays, right? The the prosperity message, the the feel-good message, but it's good theology. We see it all through the scriptures. Uh, In Genesis I'll refer to another Old Testament character. In Genesis 26, uh, two uh, two twins are born, Jacob and Esau. And Esau comes out all hairy, and then he's the firstborn. And and Jacob comes out and grabs a hold of Esau's heel, and there's the first sign. He grabs his brother's heel, and all through life, Jacob is the grabber. Jacob means supplanter, deceiver. Deceiver. And he tricks his brother, not really tricks him much because Esau was pretty complicit, but Esau gives up his birthright for a bowl of stew, and Jacob gladly has the stew ready and gladly takes the birthright. And he deceives his own father by pretending to be Esau. And and then in Genesis uh, 31... Jacob grabs, or excuse me, 32, Jacob grabs something that uh, he's never grabbed before. He grabbed a hold of God. And he wound up being grabbed a hold of by God so that he limped the rest of his life. And in Hebrews 11, we read that Jacob, by faith, blessed both the sons of Joseph and he worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. And Jacob learned to lean. He had to lean because his leg was hobbled. And he had to learn to lean on his staff. And as he leans on the staff, he's worshiping God by faith. Knowing that God is going to keep his promises to Abraham's descendants and bring them into a land. Jacob was a leaner. He learned to lean. He was a trusting man. He was a man of faith. When he wrestled with God, when he laid hold of the angel of the Lord, God says to him, Your name will no more be Jacob, deceiver. Now your name is Israel, for you're now a prince with God. What was God doing in Jacob's life, all through Jacob's life, as in Job's life, as in our life, beloved? As in all the patriarchs, as in all the apostles, as in all of his followers. He doesn't call us to himself that he might pamper us. He calls us to himself that he might conform us to the image of his son. And he takes us through the fires and through the difficulties, and he is teaching us to trust him, teaching us to lean on him. Amen? I looked for the source of this poem I want to read you. I couldn't find the author. I want to read it to you, author unknown. It somewhat 
conveys what we're trying to say here. In God's dealing with Job, he's bringing Job low, and that's a good thing, not a bad thing. He's humbling him that he might bless him. And so this poem is, I don't, I remember, think I was in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and Tennessee Temple University when I first heard this, and then I, it so impressed me the first time I heard it, and then I, I said, I've got to find that poem, and so I've got it here. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to build so great and bold a man that all the world shall stand amazed, then watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into shapes and forms of clay which only God can understand. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, yet God bends but never breaks when man's good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and with mighty power infuses him and with every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God's training his servants. God's humbling his servants. Pride will be our ruin, and God will not let us be ruined. God will teach us to follow in the steps of our Lord. What did our Lord do? Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Don't lift yourself up in vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, think about Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, this Holy God, the Son of God, equal to God the Father, yet he becomes a man. He comes down, he lays aside that equality with God, laying aside that independent exercise of his divine nature, and he humbles himself and submits himself to the incarnation. And he comes down, and he's found in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. So you look at Jesus, and he humbles himself, and he humbles himself again, and he humbles himself, and he keeps going lower and lower and lower until the highest becomes the lowest. And you see him hanging on a cross in shame, wearing a crown of thorns and bearing my sins on his shoulders. That's humility, isn't it? And we're called to mimic our Lord. We're called to walk after him. Paul starts that great passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11. He starts it with this, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He says, you do this too. Jesus did it, now you do it. Humble yourself, go down and down and down and keep going down. It's a good place to be. It's the right place for us to be. Pride is the original sin. Pride was found in this mighty angel and he was expelled from heaven. And we read his boastful words in a couple of Old Testament prophets, speaking of kings, and yet the words there spoken there in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are 
too vast and too sweeping statements to be made by mere kings. They speak of a proud king, but the power behind that proud king. Even Satan. And Paul tells us when he's writing in the pastoral epistles, we're not to make a new convert, a leader in the church, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Remember that? Pride was the original sin, the first sin, the mother's sin of all sins. Where do we find pride today? Look at Mark 7 with me. Mark 7, 21 through 23. Where is pride? Where is, what is the source of pride? It started with Satan, but it didn't stop there. Now we find it here, much closer than Satan. It is Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness or lewdness or sensuality, unrestrained, shameless behavior, an evil eye. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Pride is native to the heart. Pride is native to the unconverted heart, as is deceit and lustfulness and theft and so forth. This is native to an unconverted heart. It's been that way since Genesis 3 when man fell. So pride now is in us, it's part of us, and in the new birth, in conversion, in regeneration, God takes out the heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh, and he writes his laws on it, and he begins to teach us the truth about pride and the necessity for humility, and it's a hard lesson for us to learn, but it's a lesson taught by his spirit and by his word, amen? James chapter 4 uh, Verse 6 and 10, James 4, 6 and 10, God gives more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud. That word resisteth, that word to resist is a word that means God sets himself up as an adversary against. He takes a position in battle as to set himself in array, as, as to battle against the proud. God doesn't just look at a proud sinner and say, oh, and get disgusted. God actively opposes the proud. He sets himself like an opposing army against the proud. He battles a proud man or woman. He resists them. But he gives grace to the humble. Resisting the proud, giving grace to the humble. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Wonderful verse that Solomon prayed as he dedicates the temple to the Lord. He says, Oh Lord, you've done this for us, and, in, and I'm not going to summarize the whole prayer, but you can find it in Samuel and Chronicles. But the verse we're familiar with is 2 Chronicles 7 14. He says, If the people if your people wander away from you, O oh Lord, and you bring judgment to us, he says, if my people which are called by my name shall 
What's the very first thing? Humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven. I will forgive their sins. I will heal their land. God heals. God forgives. God works on the behalf of those who humble themselves before him. He resists the proud. He helps the humble. We see it all through the scriptures. Isaiah 57, 15. <clears throat> Isaiah 57, 15 says, Though the Lord be high, excuse me, wrong verse, Isaiah 57, 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, that is, the one who lives forever, the high one, the holy one, the eternal one. This is what he says. His name is holy, and here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place. Now, here's the surprise. We expect that one. God, the holy one, dwells in the high and holy place. And here's the surprise. With him also, here's where also God dwells, with the one who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. And so, God values humility. God works humility in his people. God dwells with the humble one. He resists the proud. Beloved, think with me. Who of us is not proud in our hearts, in our minds, in our thinking? Look, God made us in his image. He made us creative. He made us to find great fulfillment in the things that we do, a painting, a poem, a, a work of art of some kind, a song. I think that's how some, one of the ways we express God's image. God is the master artist, isn't he? He makes and he creates and he made us in his image and he's given us the ability to do those things. And I'm not saying it's wrong to feel satisfaction in those things. You ever put your ta hand to a task and you do it and you see it through and then you finish at the end and you say, this is good. And you find satisfaction in it. I'm not talking about that's a wicked thing. I'm not saying that's a wicked thing at all. It's a part of being made in the image of God, I think. I'm talking about a kind of pride that is rooted in vainglory, that's rooted in pushing God out and pushing God away and me being the center of the universe. Psalm 138, 6 is the one I was going to say earlier. Though the Lord be high, yet he hath respect unto the lowly. Though the Lord be high, yet he looks for and gives favor to the lowly. But the proud he knows afar off. The proud cannot have a close relationship with him. The lowly are the ones that God takes into his company. Before we ever can get saved, we have to humble ourselves. We have to admit that we're not righteous. We have to say, I have some little coins in my pocket, Lord. I thought they were meritorious. I thought maybe I could use these to bargain and to leverage, but I see now it's just monopoly money. It's fake money. It's no value at all to you. I have nothing. And so I throw it down. It's worthless, and I come to you with empty hands. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling, naked, 
I come to you for dress. Helpless, I look to you for grace. Foul, I'm filthy and foul and vile and wretched. I to the fountain fly, and there you will wash me. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So it was one of God's uh, wonderful purposes to bring Job low, to bring him low, to bring him down, to humble him. And he's still doing that. And it's a hard thing. I'm not saying this is easy. Uh, we will have days to come. If we've had them in the past, we'll have them in the future. Everything will go wrong. There will be times of failure and pain and perhaps disaster and great, uh, great misery of heart. And it may be that right then is God's, perhaps some of his best things that he's doing for our benefit. And it's a hard truth to swallow, but it's a mark, a mark of his mercy that God would so love his children that he would not let us ruin ourselves with pride. And so he will stop us and check us and hinder our vile plans. He will put a roadblock there and we say, I don't understand it. Why is God not smoothing the way before me? He's keeping you from ruining yourself perhaps, and keeping me from doing that. He is merciful to us to humble us. And I praise God that one day the humbling time will be over. I'm not saying we'll become proud again. I'm just saying humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And one day we will be glorified and we will be with him and then we won't battle pride anymore. When we get a glorified body, the, 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 the tendency for pride to clutch us will lose its possibility. And we will fall down before Jesus at the throne on glorified knees. We will fall down on our glorified faces and worship, and then we will get up and we will do his bidding. We will serve him in a new heaven and a new earth. But when we serve him, we won't take the glory. When we serve him, we won't do it. For our name, we will do it for his, and it'll be the most wonderful thing of all. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good purposes in the lives of your children. Thank you that in mercy and love and patience with us and kindness to us, you lead us to that point of lowliness before you. And Lord, the world would say of us that we are grovelers and we are miserable men and women. And yet we would read your word and we would say, it is no bad thing for a creature to bow low before the creator. We do not do well on high places. We fall. And so we are safe when we're low. We're safe when we bow down. We're safe when we give you glory. Nebuchadnezzar lifted himself up and he became like a wild beast of the field. Oh, what a fall. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit goes before a fall. And oh, how Nebuchadnezzar fell. Herod spoke and they said, it's the voice of a God, not a man. And he immediately was smitten and died at a gruesome death because he gave not God the glory. 
Guard us, O Lord. Teach us, O Lord. Help us, O Lord. Thank you for these dear brothers and sisters here tonight. And and Lord, help us to, to walk humbly with our God. You said through the prophet Micah, He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. And so to help us to do that and to know the joy of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.